Kids, I would like to dismiss you for Children's Church. Have a lot of fun. Learn a thing or two while you're there as well. Always good. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover today. And uh, my watch is still an hour behind. So I don't feel so bad if you don't make it out here till 11 o'clock. On top of that, you always have a couple of people, and please be gracious to them when they come in late. I think everybody should be here by now, but there might still be some people coming. Um, and I don't want them to miss out on anything, so that's why I'll stretch it a little bit too. <laughs> but before I will speak to you as, an, as a preacher, I first want to speak to you as a congregant. Oftentimes people ask, how many pastors do you guys have at Coast Community? And the answer is kind of two and a half, which gives me a little bit of an insight on both sides. But um, as a congregant who had the, the pleasure, really, to spend two days, what do I say, four days, almost five days, including traveling, with your pastors, um, I just want to let you know that they truly are the real deal. And uh, just to get a little bit of an inside glimpse on their dreams and their hopes and their love for this church is, is truly remarkable. So um, I've stuck around for 14 years in this church, um, and I'm planning to do that for another 14, 14 years if, uh, if I can. But um, let them know that you appreciate them, uh, because I sure do know that they appreciate and they love you as well. Good. Well, today we find ourselves in the last chapter in the book, The Story. And, you know, I like the title of the story, but it gets a little confusing because I talk about the story as well. And sometimes I don't really know, am I referring to the book or the story or the... Anyway, we're in the last chapter of the book, The Story of the Old Testament. For 21 weeks, we have been covering the Old Testament for, for right now. And for those of you who might not know, the thing that is really different between the Old Testament as it is in the Bible versus the story is in the story we have actually walked through the events of the people of Israel in chronological order. The Old Testament is not put together as such. The first 17 books are in chronological order, but the letter 22 are all mixed up. And in the story, we kind of put it together, and that gives you a really nice overview and a nice flow. So even though we will be reading somewhere out of the midst of the Old Testament, because we're going to be reading the text out of Nehemiah, which you can kind of find in the middle of the Old Testament, we're actually really in the last phase of the people of Israel before we move into the New Testament. Now, what I want to do is I want to give you kind of a quick review of all of the Old Testament. And the reason why I want to do that is because I think it will place everything in its proper context for what we will be doing from here on out. Not just today, what I will be talking about, but even the, Old Test of, uh, even the New Testament, what we will be entering into next week, is there's so much more riches to, to it if you are able to place it in the context of the Old Testament. But it also gives us the ability to take a bird-eye view of all the ground that we have covered thus far, 
And that will really help us to see this high story that we have been talking about. Not just the events, not just the participants or the characters, but truly God moving in his people, in his creation. And that will continue to move as we are moving into the New Testament. So what I'm going to do this morning is I want to break down the Old Testament really in five sections. And all of these sections start with the word E. And um, if you can, I would encourage you to write them down. Uh, I didn't come up with those myself, but I sure use them a lot because it, will help, it helps me. When I read the Old Testament, the first question I ask is, from which section is this? Because it gives me the ability to place the book, especially, this is especially important when you read the prophets or when you read the Psalms. It gives you the ability to place it in its proper historical context and makes it that much richer. So the five sections we're going to be covering are Eden, election, exodus, empire, and exile and return. Now, Eden is the first section of the Old Testament, and here we see the original man and woman, Adam and Eve, created in the image of God, in the imagio Dei. Perfect harmony with God, in a close relationship with him. But disaster strikes as Eve is being deceived by the serpent and the husband or Adam follows her in her disobedience and sin enters the world. Leading to sickness, to death, to disobedience and all types of evil under the sun. And things are getting so bad that by the time that Noah comes around, the Bible writes that every inclination of man's heart was geared towards evil. God in his righteousness can no longer tolerate this. He's judging evil, and we see him doing that in this section in two ways. The first way is he expels Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And by the time that Noah comes around, he wipes out the earth by means of a flood new start. The main characters in this section of the Bible are Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and his sons. The interesting thing, and we have not talked about this very much, but they are all present in the story, is that God in each of these sections gives a promise to his people. Bigger word, covenant. And God enters into a promise with them. And in this time frame, we see this in the Noahic covenant. You can find that in Genesis chapter 9. And what God does is that he promises Noah and his descendants that even although he judged the evil in the world by wiping it out by means of a flood, that he will never do this again. It's a promise that he makes. It's an unconditional promise. It really does not depend on our behavior or their behavior. But that leaves us with an interesting question at the end of this section. What is God going to do about the issue of sin? Now, we see him taking some step towards a solution in this in the next section, which is called election, the second E, election. It's about 2000 BC that this is taking place on our time frame. And what God does is that he selects a man by the name of Abraham. 
Now, Abraham was just a normal guy, really nothing special to him. He grew up in an idol-worshipping society, and God grabs him and takes him and makes him a couple of incredible promises. He turns from an idol worshiper to a God-fearer, and God wants to take him and his descendants as a people who no longer worship idols, but now worship God. Now, the promise that, he, that God makes to Abraham really has two attributes to it. The first is a promise of land. The second is a promise of descendants. And the third one is a promise of blessing or redemption. God promised Abraham to bless him, not so that he could sit and keep it all to himself, which is unfortunately what the people of Israel ended up doing, but to go and bless the other nations. They were to be the example of God's glory into the world. The third section starts with the book of Exodus. The people of Israel have now grown into a people of about 2 million people, 500 years later, 1500 BC is where we find ourselves right now. So they're a big group of people. There is just one problem. They are enslaved. They're enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the interesting thing is that the majority of this section, though, doesn't just speak about the slavery. It actually speaks about the great story of how God redeems his people by a man named Moses, through the leadership of a man named Moses. And God does some incredible things in this section of Scripture. The ten plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the raining down of bread from heaven, turning bitter of water into sweet water. And during this time, in the wandering that the Israelites have in the desert, where they spend 40 times, God gives them the law. There are many ups and downs during this period because it carries on all the way to the book of Ruth. There are many ups and downs. There's times that people are in great worship to God, but there's also times that they turn their back on God and just want to go back to Egypt. There's times that they buy into this new law, and then there are times that they create their own golden calf. This happens over and over again, all the way to the book of Ruth. Now, the main characters in this section of Scripture are Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Joshua and Deborah, Samson, Gideon, and Ruth. Also a promise in this section of Scripture. It's called the Mosaic Covenant, which was centered around God's divine law that Moses had received on Mount Sinai. Now, there's a big difference between this covenant and all the other covenants that, we are talk that I already talked about and that I'm going to talk about, because this covenant is conditional. That means that the blessings that God promised that he would bestow on his people were in direct relationship to their obedience to the law that he had given them. If Israel is obedient, God will bless them. If Israel is not, then God will punish them. Which brings us to the fourth section of the Bible called Empire. We're about 1,000 B.C. right now. This is the period in which the people of Israel 
want to be like the people around them. And they say, we want a king. Now, even though Samuel nor God is particularly amused by this request, he actually ends up giving them one. The first one being Saul, followed by King David, really the greatest king that Israel has ever had, obviously besides Jesus Christ himself. And he then in return is followed by uh, Solomon. Now, this is truly the golden era of the people of Israel. Things are tracking really well for them. They're in in relative peace. They're at their biggest geographical uh, possession of land. They are financially truly blessed. Things are going well for them. It is at this point that that Solomon builds the temple, a place of worship for God. Unfortunately, after this temple is built, and after Solomon gives the reign to his son, things are starting to go in the wrong direction. They actually already started to go in the wrong direction during Solomon, but it kind of continues from there on. So, what's happening uh, there is that eventually, really what is taking place is that people are starting to worship idols again, a certain disregard of God starts to send in. And as this continues from king to king, uh, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Now, the second of the fir- uh, under the son of Solomon, the, the, the kingdom is actually being split in two. The ten northern tribes known as Israel, the sec- two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin, known as Judah. The interesting thing is that a lot of times this will be a little confusing because these names are being used interchangeably, and you're probably going to find me doing the same thing, so I already want to ask your forgiveness. But as things are coming together again, we're really talking about only two tribes, but we still refer to them as Israel, which is kind of interesting. But I'll I'll try to uh, make make that up and, and point that out when I make these mistakes myself. So the sin of the people get worse and worse, and in 722 B.C., The ten northern tribes are being conquered by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are the main powerhouse in that region around that time. They move the people of Israel all over their empire. And they take people from other areas of the empire and they move them into Israel, which is now called Samaria. And basically those ten tribes disappear and are also known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Some of the main characters during this time are Samuel, David, Saul, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Josiah, Hezekiah. You've heard all these names, Ahab, Jezebel, Isaiah. Again, God makes a promise during this time. And this time he makes the promise to King David. You can find that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the thing that he promises to David is that David, the line of David, or David lineage, will produce a king that will rule forever. That the Messiah, or Jesus Christ, will come from his lineages. He would establish a kingdom that endures forever. And once again, this, king, this covenant is unconditional. It doesn't depend on the behavior of the 
of the Israelites. The fifth and final section, and that is what we find ourselves in today, is the exile and return. And some of the main characters during this time are Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Zerubbabel, Esther, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And also here a covenant is given, spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah, who writes, this is the new covenant I will make with my people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. Matthew writes to us in his fifth chapter that Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law of Moses and create a new covenant between God and his people. The old covenant was written in stone, but the new covenant is written on our hearts, made possible by faith in Christ who shed his own blood to atone for the sins of the world. Now, we will learn a lot more about this new covenant and this Jesus in the next nine chapters that will cover the New Testament, and I would encourage you to be part of that. But I just want to back up a little bit, because the ten northern tribes had been conquered by the Assyrians. The southern two tribes got to model on for about 150 more years, and then they got to the point as well where they were so far entrenched in sin that God just said, enough. So by that time, the Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians move in, who have actually become the new powerhouse in the region. And what they do is they just destroy the city of Jerusalem. They knock down the walls. They burn the temples. They drag everybody out. They bring them to their homeland. And the people of Israel are enslaved, enslaved again. Their history has gone full circle. Now, this must have been a traumatic, <coughs> sorry, a traumatic event for the Jews to see that and destruction of that magnitude and to be forced to leave their homeland, be brought a thousand miles away from where they grew up and become slaves again. But in his mercy... God gives a promise to the prophet Jeremiah that this exile will last 70 years. It was, this was the low point of the people of Israel. But God, during the prophetic voices of Daniel and Ezekiel, Haggai, and Zechariah, and Malachi, start to give the people hope for restoration, a rebuilding of their glorious temple and the city of Jerusalem. God did not forsake his people. He actually allowed the Persians to take over the Babylonians. And then he moved into King Cyrus and to, to issue a decree to let some of the Jews return back to their homeland. The Persians ruled their empire different than the Babylonians did. The Persians decided that it was better for the native people to move back to the country where they came from, to give them a certain level of autonomy, as long as they paid taxes and supported the empire. 
Now, just on a side note, if you ever wonder if God can use non-believers for his glory, I think King Cyrus and King Artaxerxes are pretty good examples of that. Because what they do is they don't just let the people go back to their land, the Jewish people. They actually resource them by supplying them with money, with building materials, and all the artifacts that the Babylonians had stolen for the temple. And they also gave them authority, the ability to travel, and to build, and to govern their people. So in three stages, over about a hundred years, the Jewish people were allowed to migrate back to Jerusalem, only to discover that the city was still in ruins and desolate, and that it was dangerous to live there, it was difficult, and it was sorrowful. Now, the first 50,000 people that returned came with a guy named Zerubbabel, and they began to rebuild the temple. You read about this in chapter 19, and James preached on this two weeks ago. Unfortunately, they got discouraged and they quit, so God sends them two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to encourage them to fill, finish this building project. And ultimately, the temple indeed is rebuilt. Now, this is where we find ourselves today, chapter 21 of the story. The temple has been rebuilt. The first group of exiles has settled back into the country, and two more groups are on their way. The first man to enter the scene at this point in time is a man by the name Ezra. Ezra the priest, sometimes called Ezra the scribe. And he came down with the blessings of the king, and he took with him a couple of things that were really important. The first thing that Ezra brought with him was a knowledge of and a devotion to the law of God. Because Ezra would be the spiritual leader of Israel during this time. He had the task to help to rebuild a spiritually broken nation. The second thing that he brought with him were priests, Levites, gatekeepers, temple servants. He was basically entrusted with all the components to rebuild an ecclesiastic order along the lines of how God had instructed Moses and Aaron, who happens to be Ezra's great, 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 great father, the first priest. And then the third thing that he brought were all the artifacts that were needed to conduct worship in the temple. The second man that came a little bit later was a, name, was a man by the name of Nehemiah. Now, there were two things that Nehemiah did that were really important. The first thing that he did was he rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. The temple was there, the people had moved in, but they were vulnerable. They had no protection. So Nehemiah comes and he actually helps to rebuild the walls. The second thing that Nehemiah does is he builds a civil government. Now, since Israel was in essence a theocracy, there was some overlap with the priesthood here. But you have three guys, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, or maybe more accurately, you have one God through three guys that rebuilt the nation of Israel. And here I make my mistake, because really what it is, it's the nation of Judah. It's those two tribes left. But 
So when I talk from now on about Israel, what I mean is those two tribes around Jerusalem. The interesting thing is that Zerubbabel does is that he first rebuilds the temple, the very presence of God himself. Now, for those of you whose life is in shambles and are trying to rebuild it, a good place to start is to give God his proper place, to allow him to set up camp in the temple that now is, as Paul explains to us in Corinthians and Ephesians, is in our heart and in us as a collective people, a.k.a. the church. But that is not enough. It doesn't stop here. Giving God the opportunity to move into your life or to have him move back into your life is only the beginning. You see, having a temple is not worth much unless there is interaction going on with him who inhibits that temple, with God himself. So after the temple is built, after the priests have moved in, after the walls have been erected and administrations and organizations have been built and instituted, we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 8. And that's where I want to read from. I actually want to invite you to stand, which is really appropriate for this section of Scripture. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it out loud from daybreak till noon. As he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and the others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood Metatiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Mashiach, and on his left were Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Heshem, Hashbadada, Zechariah, Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book. And all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen. Amen. Then they bowed down and they worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, the Levites Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, and Mashiach, Kalita, Azariah, uh, Josabeth, Hanan, and Peliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving them meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is sacred to the Lord your God. 
do not mourn or weep. For all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed the people, saying, Be still, for this is a sacred day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and to send portions of food and celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. On the second day of the month, the heads of all the families, along with the priests and the Levites, gathered around Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. And they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded to Moses, that the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim this word and spread it throughout their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out into the hill country and bring back branches from olive and wild olive trees and from myrtles and palms and shade trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought back branches and built themselves booths on their own roofs and in their courtyards, and in the courts of the house of the Lord, and in the square by the water gate, and one by the gate of Ephraim. The whole company had, that had returned from exile built booths and lived in them. From the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. Day after day, from the first day to the last, Ezra read from the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the feast for seven days, and on the eighth day, in accordance with the regulation, there was an assembly. It's the word of the Lord. Now, as a church, as an assembly, we can take great lessons from what take place, takes place here. For it really gives us a layout or a blueprint of what a healthy spiritual community looks like and what they do. So as we go through these, I want you to think about which of these are resonating with you and where you feel particularly either strong, a strong indication to as where you might have to participate more or where you really feel like I'm tracking well on this uh, as well. But the first thing that they do is that the word of the Lord takes a central place in their celebration. You can read that in verses 2 and 3. Ezra, I don't know if you caught it, read the law from daybreak till noon. That's about five to six hours. Now, I have to be, I have to be honest. I was very tempted to actually lock the back doors, <laughs> take out the chairs, because they were standing, right, in the presence, and do this with you guys. Now, I don't think I go too far out on a limb to guess that our reaction will not be quite that of the Israelites. The Israelites were weeping, crying, brought to tears by the reading of the word. Now, I have a feeling that we would be weeping too, but probably more along the lines of, I'm missing my lunch, or I'm missing my favorite football game. Or, this is going on and on and on. My feet are hurting. I'm uncomfortable. But yet, the psalmist writes to us that God's word is sweeter than honey 
and more precious than gold. That it is a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our paths. Solomon writes that the word is pure and as a shield protects those who trust in it. And John tells us that the word of God brings life. Now, if this is actually the case, if we actually believe this stuff, should not all of us treasure reading the word? Should we not all stand in awe? And should we not all be touched in the core of our being when the word of God is being read? Should we not engage in this often? J.R. Miller writes, it is impossible, you can read this because this quote was actually written for parents to encourage them to read the word of the Lord to their children. So parents particularly take note to this, but I think it's very applicable to all of us. It is impossible to estimate the full influence of reading the word day after day, year after year. It filters into our hearts. It is absorbed into our souls. It colors our, all our thoughts. It is wrought into the very fiber of our minds. It imbues us with its own spirit, and its holy teachings become the principles of our lives, which rule our conduct and shape our actions. Now, I realize that I might be getting on thin ice here, but my favorite service here in this church, obviously besides the one that I get to preach every now and then, is, is Good Friday. And at Good Friday service, all we do is just listen to the word being read. Not much that's being add, added to that. A couple of songs. But many of us walk away from that service with tears in our eyes. Teresa and Jeremy played a song though during the offertory this morning. It went like this, speak, O Lord, and come to, uh, uh, as we come to you to receive the food of your holy word. Take your truth and plant it deep in us and shape and fashion us into your likeness. The second thing that the people of Israel do in this assembly is they worship. They praise the Lord, face, verse 6. They praise the Lord, they lift their hands, and they respond, Amen. Amen. They bow down, put their faces to the ground, and it is interesting to note that it was the reading of the Word of God that inspired them to this kind of worship, because it is the word of God that shows us the depth of God's love for us. You see, worship is not just singing pretty songs with good melodies and catchy choruses, although, Teresa, you showed us this morning very well that it truly has the power to touch us into the core of our being, but worship truly is rooted in our relationship with God. It is the act of putting him before anything else. It is to declare that his ways are higher than ours. Now, I like to draw your attention to the physical aspect of worship. 
In this case, the people are raising their hands and bowing with their faces to the ground. And the Bible is full of physical expressions of one's dependency upon and one's love for God. A couple of weeks, months ago, we watched a funny video of all kinds of hands moves in the, in the church that take place. But what do raised hands really signify? Well, for one, raised hands are an example or symbolic for our dependence on someone else. Raising hands during worship can very much be similar to raising hands that a little child does when he wants to be picked up. It shows one's dependency upon and love for God. His desire to be picked up and comforted, protected, and carried. The psalmist writes in Psalm 143, I stretch my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Thus raising the hands may suggest a reaching out for God's presence, blessing, comfort, and strength. Another significant meaning of raising our hands is to bless God. Psalm 63, the psalmist says that he raises his hands to bless God. And this symbolizes both gratitude and joy for the blessings that God has given us. Many of the psalms indicate that hands are raised in song and in prayer to show thankfulness and joy for God's great works. Now, it took me many years before I was comfortable to kneel here at these very altars because I thought that I was doing something in public that really belonged in private. But worse than that, I thought by kneeling here in front of the entire church, I would show that I did not have my spiritual act together. Okay, it was okay for you guys to go here. <laughs> Especially those of you who were not nearly as mature as myself or <laughs> sinned more. And I hope you catch the sarcasm in this. But I started to realize that in this very act of physically humbling myself before God, and yes, in a certain extent, physically humbling myself in front of all of you, that the Lord would exalt me. That he had been opposing me because of my pride, and finally he could grace me in my humility. And it was in this act of physically bowing down before God and his church that a deeper connection with God took place. And because of that, I would recommend you to engage your body in worship. I have often felt that my heart followed my, my physical posture. That by engaging my body in worship, I connected on a more deep and a more significant level with God. Now the question is, of course, should we all raise our hands and place our faces to the ground? I would love to see that. But I also want you to hear this. Ultimately, it's not about what we do, but what, where our heart is. Isaiah reminds us in 20, Isaiah 29 that these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me 
with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So what we sing and what we do is far less important than where our hearts are. Now, I want you to understand, though, that worshiping is a joy and a privilege. It should be our absolute favorite thing to do. Better than good food, Aaron. Better than playing our favorite sport. Better than a day at the beach. Better than watching a good movie. AZ Tozer says, I can safely say, and I think it's on there, that on the authority of all that is revealed in the word of God, that if any man or woman on this earth who is bored and turned off by worship is not ready for heaven. The third thing that they do is they teach and they preach the word of God. Now, there is a biblical mandate for teaching and preaching the word of God. Jesus did it, Paul did it, Peter did it, and in this setting, Ezra and his priests are doing it as well. It is, however, not a substitute for reading the Bible ourselves. But we need to grapple with the word of God as a collective people as well. And a couple of things that are happening when preaching, and this is not the entire, it's just a couple of examples, is a feeding of the congregation, a nourishing of their souls. You can find this in John 21, 15 to 17. A discipling of Christians, Matthew 28, 20. And bringing new Christians into the faith, Mark 16 to 15. John Calvin said that where the word is not preached and heard, there is no church. To be the body of Christ and to worship, we need preaching. But our teaching goes way further than just the preaching on Sundays. And I want to remind you that we have small groups, Sunday school, children's church, and youth ministry. And I just want to ask uh, all of you who are involved in any of these ministries, small groups, youth group, Sunday school, to, to raise your hand. If you are not involved in that, and I, I didn't do this to put you on the spot, but what I did do is, as you looked around and saw the people who raised their hands, I would really encourage you just to talk to them after service and ask them why they're doing what they're doing, why they're going to a small group, why they're going to Sunday school, why they sent their child to youth ministry. And just listen to that and learn. And maybe just decide to go yourself as well. The fourth thing that they did was they were eating and building community together, fellowship. Now, this is most people's favorite part of church, right? I mean, let's just be honest. In this, in this church, we're particularly good at this stuff. Being together and having a sense of belonging. Now, for the Israelites, this was particularly important because they were rebuilding their community. They had just gotten back from slavery. They had settled in a land that was hostile to them. They had really kind of lost a sense of community. They were under continuous attack from the surrounding tribes. They had to rebuild everything that they had, including the temple and the walls. And in order to rebuild a community, Nehemiah tells them to go and eat together. Now, Nehemiah was not just a partier. 
I think this was a very, very intentional move on his side. This was not time wasted. Now, I make this mistake continuously, all the time. I always think that we have more important things to do here at church than to engage in potlucks, chili cook-offs, game nights, and other silly things like that. But the reality is that cultivating relationships and doing life together really gets to the heart of what Christian living is all about. You see, knowledge and theology and doctrine are useless outside the relational context. So praise the Lord for my wife who recognizes this so much better than myself and who continuously reminds me of its importance. The last thing that the Israelites are doing is they engage in a participation of they engage and participate and align themselves with the traditions and festivals of the Jewish people. There is nothing, there is nothing that is as effective in underlining that we are a community as participating in traditions. You see, God had ordained various festivals throughout the year for the Jewish people. Passover is probably the best known of these feasts, but the Feast of Booths, or Sukkot, was one of them as well. Now, this festival was designed to remember the wilderness journey from Egypt to Canaan, when God made the people live in Booths. And during the time of this feast, each Israeli family or Jewish family was to live in basically a made-up booth or tent for a week. Now, the Israelites now found themselves in a very similar situation. Instead of wandering in the desert for 40 years, this particular group of people just came back from exile that had lasted 70 years. But they were back in the country, in the land that God promised them so long ago. Now, I have to admit that sometimes I don't feel like yet another season of Lent again or another Advent. But Nehemiah recognizes the importance of our participation in these traditions that connect us with God, with fellow believers, not just here in our local congregation, but but believers beyond this church and with believers in time and space as well. So I would encourage you to take this Lent season seriously in that regard. And if you want to know how to do it, go see Pastor Aaron, go see Pastor James, or talk to me, and we'll really kind of walk you through what you can do to reflect on what's going on in your life, on your sinfulness, as we are moved towards the wonder of the cross and ultimately the liberation in the resurrection. Last but not least, we're getting to the end, guys. The reading of the word, worship, preaching and teaching, fellowship and traditions need to be practiced with sincerity and with our hearts in the right place. 
We already looked at Isaiah, who reminds us continuously that we often come to God with our mouths and honor him with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. The last book in the Old Testament was written by the prophet Malachi, who was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, and he raises this very issue head on. So I thought it would be appropriate to finish with the same question that he raised to his audience. If you want to read along, you can find this in Malachi chapter 1, verse 6 and on. I don't think it's on the screen, so, but you can listen to this. As a son honors, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, priests, who have shown contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you offer lame and deceased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Now plead with God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands. Will he accept you? Says the Lord Almighty. Let me paraphrase this so it makes a little bit more sense in the day and age that we live in. I would invite you to close your eyes and kind of listen to this. A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am your father, where is the honor due me? If I am your master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. You have disrespected my name. But you ask, how have we disrespected your name? By living a life with one foot in and with one foot out of the kingdom. When you claim to be my child, yet you do not live a life that reflects this, is that not wrong? When you continue to offer excuses rather than repentance as to why your greed, your arrogance, your sexual immorality, your career, your desire to get a divorce because you found somebody else that suits you better. Are you not invalidating the sacrifice my son made for you on the cross? Try to be only partially engaged at your job, with your friends, or with your family. Do you think that they will put up with that? Now beg God to be gracious to you because the way you currently live. Will he accept you? Let's pray. Lord, we just want to thank you for the lessons that you have given us by means of the story and by means of your word. Lord, Teresa reminded us already in that the people of Israel continued to turn away from you, continued to hold other things in higher regard than you. 
we are not so different. We are very similar in our behavior of idolatry. Might not be Baal, it might not be Ashrod for us. But there are many things, Lord, that are fighting for attention and that are trying to get us, of course, in our desire to live a life that is pleasing to you. None of these things are necessarily bad in itself, Lord, whether it's career, whether it's money, whether it's prestige, whether it's lustful desires. All those are actually getting a little bad. But Lord, everything that leads us away from you, everything that has taken a place that really belongs to you in our lives, will you reveal it to us? And will you help us to cut it out and uproot it, Lord? Father, as we see how the people of Israel came before you with truly holy reverence, and they found the renewed joy in the reading of the law and in who they were as a people, will you do the very same thing for our church, Lord? Will you draw us close to each other, but even closer to you? Will you help us to find true delight in the reading of your word, Lord, whether it's here on a corporate level or on our individual levels when we read your words at our homes. Will you make us a worshiping people, Lord? Will you help us to be comfortable to physically express what we feel when we are here before you? Lord, when we worship you, let us be reminded that we are really here in the, for an audience of one. Give us the liberty, Lord, response to you in the way that your Holy Spirit is moving. Lord, continue to build our community up as we fellowship together, as we eat together, as we share life together, Lord. I particularly want to pray for our small groups, Lord, where this is taking place, where the rubber really meets the road. Father, help us to live out the truths that we are learning here from your word, Lord. And Father, as we find ourselves in the first weekend of the Lenten season, will you help us to see the significance of partaking in festivals that have united the church for ages and ages, Lord. Because in so doing, not only do we learn from those who have gone before us, but we're also aligning ourselves with the universal church that operates under your authority. Lord, we are all one. We have all atoned for by the same blood. We have all been redeemed by the very same act of Jesus Christ. We are all part of this one family, this one church with you as the head. Lord, help us not to take that too casual. Help us not to show up here at church and just to perform a spectacle for the people around us, while in reality we are deeply broken and wounded. There is room for people like that because we are all like that, Lord. How often we don't allow for your grace to move into our lives because somehow we are too afraid or too worried what other people in the church might think of us. 
Lord, you fortunately can see beyond that. You already know what's going on in our lives. There's no need for us to put up a, a show or a spectacle. But help us as a church to be gracious to each other when people come in their brokenness with a desire to be found by a loving God who restores and redeems, Lord. If you forgive them, then how can we not? If you love them, Lord, how can we not? So, Father, help us and shape us and mold us more and more into a community that looks like this community that Ezra and Nehemiah led, Lord. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.